welcome to the Glass House. Thank you so much for agreeing to um, appear on it. I was shocked and stunned and delighted, all those things at once. So, um, yeah, just introduce yourself and, and give people a little bit of background on who you are and what you do. Okay. Um, well, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I do really appreciate the opportunity myself, but I also admire what you're doing. Um, I think it's a really effective way of communicating with people and reaching people. And um, let's hope that this is going to be found to be interesting by your listeners. It will so, be. <laughs> yeah, look, next year I celebrate 40 years in Siemens, and um, that's a long time. And uh, I suppose I go back, my career started off back in 1977 when wow. I finished my leaving certificate. And back in those days, I think it was appropriate that people would apply for 15, 20 different jobs. And then um, the one that I landed that I liked the best at the time was an apprentice electrician with DSB. Yeah. And I had a bit of a struggle with my dad about taking up that role. He wanted me to do mechanical engineering, but um, I eventually agreed to do it provided that I studied electronics at night. So I took up the apprenticeship and I did three and a half years out of a four year apprenticeship, but I had got three years of sitting in Guild's electronics exams. And I managed to land a job with a company in Dublin. I was living in Dundalk at the time, mm. but I managed to land a job with a company in Dublin called Nixdorf Computer as a computer service engineer. So I lifted lock, stock and barrel, moved down to Dublin. And um, I worked in, but yeah, the big smoke. I was born there, actually. I was born in Stillow oh, yeah. and then moved up to Dundalk when I was six, yeah. I was going to so say, I, your accent I, doesn't give that away. Yeah, I'm, well, I was going back to my roots. <laughs> um, so, and I was delighted to be. Uh, but I worked in Nixdorf as a service tech for about maybe four or five years. Yeah. And then I got into a service management role. And, you know, the whole service thing, it's really, really important business. Uh it, it's a difficult business to be in because nearly every time you meet your customers, they're all, they're unhappy because they have a problem, you know. Yeah. And I was watching these guys in sales, and they were going out and they're having great breakfast meetings and lunch meetings and dinner meetings with customers and prospective customers. And I said, I think I'd rather that life. So a role came up in sales for selling telecommunications equipment, and I took it. Yeah. And did you um, find it hard? Sorry, did you find it hard, like the segue from what you've been doing into sales? Yeah, because there's so much about sales that people don't really know about until yeah. they get into it. And from the outside, it looks like a completely different beast. And yeah. I even struggle today, to, you know, saying to some of my colleagues, you know, he or she, they're not a salesperson, you know. And they're saying, but you're anybody can sell. No, they can't. No. You know, no. Now, and I'm saying there isn't one recipe as to why somebody would be successful in sales. There are many, many different reasons. I mean, my reason, I'm not hail fellow well met. I'm not an extrovert that goes out and has charisma and wows customers into buying stuff. I think yeah. the biggest quality that I had was trust. People trusted me. Yeah. I knew what I was talking about. I knew my product very well. And uh, I was always there beside my customer, even when things went wrong. And I think that that that's a different that's way of doing it. Yeah, and it worked. Yeah, yeah. So then the opportunity came up when the company expanded to move into sales management. So I was a sales manager within the business, managing a small team of about five people. Yeah. And then a number of years later, the management of that division came up, and I applied for that, and I got it. And then I did a completely different segue from communications into power transmission and distribution. 
Yeah. And I took over the divisional manager role of that. And then in a few years time, and that was a subsection of the energy sector. A few years later, I got to manage the energy sector, which included not just power transmission, but also power generation and wind power and all the rest. And were you, and then, sorry, to, were you always like, because it sounds like your career trajectory like was quite quick, you know, but were you always ambitious? So when you started off, like, so um, after having like the conversation with your dad and everything, um, did you did you see yourself, you know, starting where you were and then becoming a CEO or was it always the next right move? I, I, I'm, I, I wouldn't call it from where I'm looking at it or from where I'm sitting now, I wouldn't necessarily call it ambition. But I always wanted to do more, to do bigger, to do better, to have more responsibility. I wouldn't say I wanted to be CEO or I wanted to be anything specific. Yeah. But if my learning curve started to flatten out and the challenge started to flatten out, um, I'd get hungry and I would want a bigger challenge and I would want more to do. And is that something that you'd advise people coming up now to still do? Yeah, it's very difficult. And I mean, I speak with a lot of people and I tend to look when I'm going through, we, we have a, a dual process of continuous dialogue where we speak every month and yeah. we talk about performance and we talk about career progression every month. But then we would kind of have a, a bigger session at the end of the year, which is a greater reflection on the past year and the year going forward. But I always have a tendency to talk to people about taking on more and doing more. And it's, it's a weakness of mine because not everybody's in a position to do that. Not everybody no. wants to do that. And I have to moderate my own language, you know, when I'm speaking to people to say, if this is for you or if you want yeah. to take on more, please put your hand up and let me know. But, you know, um, the fact of life is that your job isn't everything you know people have great home lives a great social lives a great family lives and some people are fired up by their social life or their family life or their home yeah. life it's a different and, motivator yeah but you have to respect that and yeah. so it's the people that are fired up by work and responsibility and um, those people um should really be looking to do more and to do better and perfect what they're doing at the moment and when they get to a position that they're doing that and doing that well and then they start looking for more responsibility, or at least that—that's the way I would look at it. Um, yeah, no, I think that's great I, advice. I, yeah, I, I'm sorry for interrupting. This AV thing okay. is a little bit difficult sometimes, but no, I, I've been very lucky because I've had a very, very strong family behind me, a very strong partner. Fiona has always supported what I've done in work. Yeah, and I've never come home and said I'm taking on more. And she went, "Why are you doing that? You're up to your right." <laughs> Yeah. No, would that, that be a conversation that, that you'd have before you'd kind of make the next move? It depends. And some of them weren't seismic. Some of them were, the, the move into sales was was definitely seismic. I remember my brother-in-law saying, I'm going to starve to death if I move into sales. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the energy sector one was pretty big. In fact, I was only managing the power transmission division three months when Siemens re-changed everything and invented these sectors. Yeah. So instead of having 16 divisions, you're going to have three sectors with five divisions in each. And uh, he called me in and he asked me, um, you know, which of these three sectors are you going to put your hat in the ring for? And I said, I'm only doing this divisional manager job three months. You know, what? how the hell could I be ready for this? Yeah. And he said, no, you are ready. Um, so that was a big one as well, because I had to go back and I had to think about the size of the job, the responsibility of the job, the number of people. And it was going to take a toll then on my, if you like, discretionary time, whether it went to yeah. work or whether it went to family. 
and then of course the CEO one was um, I wanted that because I had been in an acting position for six months at a period maybe two years before that and um, I liked it and it's something that I really wanted to do and part of the reason and I know some of what you want me to cover here is culture but part of the reason why I wanted to do that was because I suppose one of the most profound things that happened to me was when I did uh, a master's in executive leadership with Ulster University back in maybe 2009, 10, yeah. 11, and it certainly taught me for the first time the correlation or the link between leadership and culture and, and how they were so interdependent. And yeah. if you wanted to have a good culture or an appropriate culture, you had to have uh, good leadership and if you wanted to have good leadership then they needed to be focused on the culture of the organization not necessarily the operational building blocks yeah. but how the organization's dna worked and to try and shift that dna to a place that is appropriate for the goals or the purpose that you want to achieve i remember on it was on the 10th of december i think it was 2010 it was my father's birthday and I came out of a three-day class on and this, this particular module was about leadership. Yeah. And we had done assessment tests, all everything from personality typing and all the rest of it. And I just felt like I had been through 10 rounds of Mike Tyson at the time. It, I was battered after three days of this. But it really, really woke me up. And it kind of invigorated me in one sense that there was another dimension to this. It wasn't all about profit. It wasn't all about sales and sales calls and closing business. Yeah. That there was a rising tide beneath all of this. And if you could create some sort of a swell in that rising tide, which is the culture of the organization, it would lead to greater success. I, I swear, I'm going to have to use that as a snippet for this podcast because that is literally what I try and drill into people that it's that it's all intertwined like the better the culture the happier the people the more appreciated they are the better they do in their job day in day out and I think that it's um it's interesting that you learned that back when you were doing when you were doing the masters and then you actually took it from what would be a textbook and put it into practice and like we have said that we talk about uh leadership and culture but do you think then that that's that's kind of directed you as you've gone into the CEO role when you moved from the acting position? Yeah, I mean, one of the big questions that we, we were asking ourselves at the beginning of that module was, is leadership nature or nurture? In other words, are you born with innate skills that make you a great leader or a good leader? Um, or is it something that you develop along the way? Yeah. And there's as many arguments for and against that as there are people. I personally believe that it's all nurture. I believe really? anybody, you know, I, I genuinely do, but with one caveat, some people think that when you say that it's nurture, that it starts when you start into a leadership role or it starts when you start, let's say, into a managerial role or a pivotal role where yeah. you could become a leader. No, I think it starts the day you take your first breath because I think it's your upbringing, the people you interact with, the people you meet, they start to form your value system and your value system becomes part of your DNA. And if you have a value system that is appropriate, then all your leadership does is it takes that value system out of you and puts it into action. So if you have values that, you know, that embrace equality, for example, it will come out in your leadership. 
But if you don't have that value in your system from the time you were growing up when you were a little infant, then it's not there to come out. So interesting. Yeah. And so would you look back then to your time growing up and think that that came from, I mean, for you to be interested in culture and diversity and leadership, do you think that that came from when you were growing up? I, I do, um, and we weren't calling it uh, diversity no. back <laughs> No, but I think it came from a sense of fairness. Yeah. You know, and um, uh, there's a lot of what's happened in happens in worlds or businesses that are that don't have an equality agenda or don't have a, an aspect to the culture that's called equality, or they don't embrace diversity. That. Uh, there's simply just a small thing about what is reasonable and what is fair and what's compassionate and what's human. Yeah. Any of those things will drive a diversity agenda. Yeah. And do you, do you find now that with the diversity program that you would have say, well, not the program necessarily, but the culture within Siemens, it seems like you're constantly trying to evolve it and, you know, kind of hone it and develop it. Like, are you trying to stay cutting edge? Cause you seem to be leading on it. Yeah, um, and remember, it's not something that exercises everybody, and that doesn't mean that they are blind to it. It's just mm -hmm. that they're doing their own thing. And we have an organization, as I said, with roughly 85 people in it. And I would have to say that apart from gender, beyond gender diversity, the mix isn't really profound. I mean, we yeah. might have seven people from one diverse characteristic group and five people from another one, 25% of our population are women. So if you're speaking to some of those people in there and trying to promote a diversity agenda, they'd be going, why? Yeah. What, what's the point in spending money on this to try to encourage this if we've got 85 people and there's 4% or this and 2% or that? But I don't look on diversity necessarily as fitting into those seven or eight characteristic groups. Yeah. Um, I, each individual is diverse. Now, I've had yeah. some very good conversations with people who know more about this than me, and they've more or less told me that that's the preserve of privileged people who want to treat everybody as diverse, that there are groups that need to be cared for. And I get that. I yeah. absolutely get that. But I would find it difficult to promote that agenda diversity theme, talking about seven or eight characteristic groups with only a handful of people in them, I have a greater chance of making it fly if I say that we're all different, right? You know, and you can have four gray men in gray suits in a room, yet you could have absolutely fabulous diversity in that room. One could be a carer for somebody at home. Yeah. One could have a child with a disability. One could have be absolutely strapped with uh, mental health issues. And you won't see it in the room, but there yeah. are four diverse people who have are feeling diverse things at that time and the most important point is is that if where they are in their experience at that moment in time they've something different to bring to what you're trying to resolve whether that's invent something or develop something or you know manufacture something because they're coming at this from different places they have a different take on it and um i think that's really the diversity in thinking and our strap line is diversity sparks innovation. And that's something that we try to promote internally. Doesn't matter what your age is, what your gender is, whether you're LGBTQ or not. Um, once you have your own ideas and you're prepared to bring them and speak up, then 
we welcome it. Well, it seems to be working. I mean, again, it is, that's a huge thing as well. It's like diversity of thought. And then some companies that I've seen, they, they wouldn't have given such an honest answer, you know, or CEOs wouldn't have given such an honest answer. Um, because what I do think I found when I was like recruiting most recently, that some of the pushback that I got on candidates were for older candidates. Um, and I was trying to, there's Peter Cosgrove, he does the future of work and he was talking about how people are retiring later and they're going into sometimes second careers or third careers, 55, 60. Like what would be, do you have like a diverse age range within your company as well? Yes, and I'm leading it. <laughs> <laughs> um, we did a campaign recently and what we wanted to do was we wanted to pick seven of these characteristic, special characteristic groups. Um, diverse groups and um, we wanted to pick a quotation from a famous person and we wanted to send it out just as a teaser on its own just send a quotation out to everybody in a nice yeah. little kind of design flyer and then follow that up with a piece of bit more information around that characteristic and how it fitted in with the values of the company and we couldn't find a decent one for age couldn't find one decent quote from anybody, anywhere for age. Wow. So I made one up myself. And the quotation that I made up was, and I'm pretty proud of it, is that uh, wisdom is not the preserve of the old, nor innovation the young. That sounds like it's coming from, I don't know, Yates or somebody That's like that. You should, I, if I were you, I'd get that tattooed onto me, Gary. It's a great quote. <laughs> But that, but that says it all because these guys that have got 20, 30, 40 years experience, guys and gals who've got 20, yeah, 30, 40 no, years experience, they shouldn't be saying these younger people don't have a right to speak because no. they don't know where they're coming from. They don't know what their background is. They don't know what they've been through in their lives. And even just to look at a challenge, a problem through a different lens is, is, is helpful. But yeah. similarly, um, the younger people in the organization shouldn't be saying, why would you expect any innovative ideas from him or her? They're too old. Yeah. That's the same. Well, it's pigeonholing people, isn't it? It's, it's, it's meeting people with a set of expectations, you know, or yeah. a presumption on who they are and what they've lived or what they've experienced. And I think I find what helps me with recruitment is it's like what you said about it's in your DNA, you know, where it comes from. Like I, I lived in a two bedroom house with 13 people growing up. Um, like I was with my Nana, <laughs> I know everybody gives me that facial expression, but there was like my Nana, my granddad, my mom, like it was just very working class family in Vrimna. And but emotional intelligence wasn't a thing then, but what it was is that you got to read people, you know, their facial expressions and mm -hmm. um, how to talk to them when somebody needed a minute, especially living in such, close quarters and my granddad was a laborer and his thing was like, I mean like I know it's a quote that you talk to kind of the kitchen porter the same way you do the president or it's like to meet people where they are and to meet them with like a lack of expectation or presumption on, on who they are and I find that that has been one of the things that has made me in any way successful in my role it was like the lessons that had come from from those people and some of the most the biggest placements that I've made have been for people who come in and said you know um I just want to get like a part-time job or I just want to get this you know and I'm I think my age is going against me and they've gone in and they've actually smashed it in the company's lap 
I've, and, and been real like change makers, you know, because like they've really kind of great attitudes. And that's what, like the candidates that I've placed that have been most successful for me, it's been their attitude, you know, and like they're yeah. wanting to go and get something. And I mean, look, you're a better place to make those kind of assertions than I am because you meet more people that are looking for jobs and placing yeah. jobs. But, you know, we have this view as well of, and I mean, it's something that's fairly prevalent in certain societies, not in Ireland, thank God, but that, you know, this, I can do anything, all I need to do is have the right mindset and I can change the world. And sometimes that's very, very veneered. And, but I'll go back to what I said at the very beginning of all of this, and that is that if you have that can-do attitude, but its foundation is a very, very strong value system, yeah, then I think you have the capacity to do more. Because it's, once you get all of that right and you're self-assured and you believe in your own value system, then you can go into an organization and you can, you can be generous um, in terms of empowering people because yeah. value trust is a value that you hold dear. So you need to be able to trust people to empower them so they can get on and do their own job and that you don't end up micromanaging them. And that yeah. gives a greater sense of belonging to people. And that belonging then w works in such a way that people start to give more of their discretionary time to the company because they have a sense of ownership in the company yeah. and therefore the company does better. Um, and all of that supposes that in, in the very beginning that you as uh, a, a strong leader have a vision, you can, you can instill in people a sense of purpose, you can, you know, have a shared endeavor, people think, yeah. this is what I'm striving for, this is what I want to do, um, my manager, my leader is letting me get on with it and do it myself, I'm allowed to make innovative gambles myself if I like, yeah. if I fail, there's no retribution, if I succeed, then it's embedded. So you start creating a much better organization that's based around uh, a positive culture that's built, built on sound values. Yeah. Um, it's so empowering as well. And it's more fun, which is yeah. really, the, you know, like we haven't mentioned profit once. No. You know, and like, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm, uh, a, a, a dreamer that doesn't think that operational performance isn't, isn't important. Of course it is. This all supposes that it is important and yeah. that it is done behind the scenes. But, you know, you don't have to, you know, micromanage people to get good operational performance. You can get the same operational performance by inspiring people and allow them greater discretion around what they do and when they do it and how they do it. And you manage them by their output, not by when or where they do their work. Yeah. Well, I think though COVID has kind of put manners on people with that as well, you know, because a lot of companies were saying, well, you could never work from home when there can't be a degree of flexibility. And I think it's been, I mean, just even companies that I've worked with, I would, I would say to them if I was placing someone, is there flexibility, even for a 9.30 start, you know, if somebody wanted to drop their children at school or, or whatever, and it was like, no, need to be there at nine o'clock. <clears throat> Excuse me. And now you can see that people are having like the same, I'm like, sometimes they're more effective yeah. once they've been set up and working from home and they're hitting all their targets and they have that trust, you know, they're, and as you said at the start, that even with the Zoom meetings, people are communicating in a better way. I mean, like, I wonder if we ever go back to a face-to-face -face meeting, will we actually be waving at people when we're going? Because we've started to do it so much um, yeah. on, on the Zoom calls. Did you pre- 
pre-COVID, did your company, like, did you have flexible working options? We had a certain amount of it, and I won't say that it was constrained. And part of the reason why it came about was, I think it's nearly five years ago, we moved from the city centre out to the DCU Alpha campus. And we realised that we were putting maybe about between 30 and 40 percent of our population were going to have a more awkward uh, uh, travel to work. So we decided that we'd relax a few things and we gave people, you know, the option to start early and finish early. Um, and we kind of spoke about things like core hours. It seemed like we were being really generous then. But now even talking about core hours in this environment seems a little bit, you know, yesterday-ish. Um, so we did some of it, you know, and then we tried to encourage if people had to come in and they were in traveling from areas where traffic was an issue during peak hours. We kind of said to them, look at the odd time, work from home or don't bother coming into the office and then going out to a sales meeting, work from home and then go directly to the sales meeting or to the sales with, with a customer, go to the customer site directly. So we had a certain amount of it, but COVID just escalated the whole thing where we had 100% of our employees were working productively from home within about two or three weeks. As I mentioned, we had some infrastructure issues. But once we got those resolved, 100% of our population were working from home effectively. And I do appreciate that we're lucky in that regard, the nature of our work, yeah. that can happen. you know. But now we're trying to... Um, embed that in the organization so it's not something that you know that I remember listening to some guy giving a chat and he was talking about how people in my generation call you know this here a mobile phone you know and to uh, you know 18 year olds 90 year olds it's a phone yeah <laughs> you know and we're talking about flexible working today hopefully in five years time we won't be calling it flexible working we'll be yeah. calling it working the flexibility it's thing is, to, it's, it's a great way to look at it. Yeah. yeah. And I think and it opens up for people as well. It opens up people who want to work, you know, and I mean it's even it, even environmentally, like you know, the access to talent that you will have, even if you are based, you know, say in the city west, like you can still hire somebody from Dundalk or Drogheda and you know, and have access to the best people for the job because you don't necessarily you're not tied to a location. Yeah. Which, which I think is opening up, opening up. And I also think as well for parents, you know, like with children and things like that, like if they can do the things where they can actually, you know, drop their children to school, have those moments, have breakfast, this and that, and then still do the work that they need to do um, during the day. It seems to be a little it's going like a little bit more fluid. Yeah. Which is great. And and just as you're saying that, it, it's something else just strikes me when I think about me and 39 years in Siemens. Where people are saying that you know in the future employees won't work for the same company for any longer than two or three years mm. um, i don't see why that has to be the case and you you know the, the the metaphor yourself better than i do and that is that people leave managers not companies True. so if you have a millennial who's working in a job and they have a sense of belonging they're motivated they're encouraged to em empower themselves they have a sense of ownership yeah. They're paid reasonably well, and there is career progression within the job. Why would you leave that if you had a good manager? Why, why would you bother leaving? 
So I don't think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that with this new environment, everybody will be leaving after three years. No. If you treat somebody properly and if they have a career that is interesting and a career that's motivating and satisfying and they have a good work-life balance, don't leave. Why would Stay. you? Yeah. No, no, no. And I, I completely agree with you. I mean, it's obviously like my job is uh, placing people, you know, and it's fundamentally like, a, well, recruitment is sales. Like, I didn't know that it was sales when I went into it. I used to think that I was just helping people. Like, I had to, because uh, I've been an air hostess previously, so I had to Google what a KPI was. And so I was completely, I know, I was completely new to it. But for me as well, and this is one of the videos I've done the other day. I just think that you need to constantly be learning and challenging yourself. And that to me isn't every three months you need to change your job. Like I feel that you need to, and this is the advice I give to candidates is to research the company, look at the career, like career trajectory people have within it. You know, you could go in in one position and, and like yourself end up somewhere completely different, you know, but you need a company that's going to invest in you as an individual. You know, and if you can find that kind of company, it's like a relationship or a marriage or whatever it would be. It's like, you know, it grows and there's different tiers and, you know, you, you can take on you can take on new things with it. But I think that you're actually going to see the opposite. I think that you'll see people staying with companies for longer because you, you always notice things are cyclical. You know, it yes. grows for a while that it's completely different and they work for a couple of years and then move on. And then I think it will go back to where you'll see people with companies for for longer periods of time. Yeah, I would believe. But it's an interesting time we live in. Um, I think it's the first time in certainly in my life, and I've witnessed the cycles many, many times. But up until this event, COVID, um, the technology companies were always way out there ahead of us, yeah. the population, telling us what's coming and trying to encourage us to take on the new stuff. And this is the first time that the workforce have actually stepped ahead of the technology companies and now they're demanding more from them and they yeah. have to respond to provide wider platforms bigger platforms more in feature enhanced platforms applications tools and i think you're going to see an acceleration in this now and i think that i i think the working environment i won't say it'll be unrecognizable because it won't be kind of a big bang but it'll be a, a transition over the next four to five years but i think yeah. in four or five years time when we look back things will be very different but what won't be different will be the things around why people work why people stay at work why people keep at work with the same company or a different company or whatever else. yeah um people need to have a sense of belonging they need to feel that they're treated properly and um, they need to feel that they're empowered to do their own work yeah. and um, it's up then to the management and the leadership within the company to create that shared endeavor and make sure that people know why they're doing what they're doing, what purpose yeah. do they serve. That's a big thing, actually. And when you said why people are doing what they're doing, um, I've read that book recently, you know, by Simon Sinek, um, Start With Why. He yeah. has this book, and it's like, it, it's pretty much literally what you said, just about finding your motivation and why you want to do something, and that's kind of where everything stems for, from that. And you'd spoken um, about millennials and things like that. What would you say, I suppose, to to leaders like to managers because you know i think managers sometimes get a, a bad rap you know and sometimes it's down to training no because it's hard to manage people you know and it is hard to lead and there's so many different personalities and things like that is there any kind of tips that you give to current 
managers or leaders or, or about like something that you've learned that like, you know, or a key, a key, I suppose, tip for them in getting buy-in from the teams they work with? Yeah. Um, when you mentioned training there, have you heard of McGregor's Theory X and Theory Y? No. Okay. You need to look that up. Okay, right? hang on, and I need to write it down. It, it, it's not what it is. It's when it came out is what's important. But I, I, I don't know if I got my X and Y mixed up. But That's okay. But a theory Y manager believes people are inherently bad. They have to be micromanaged. If you take your eye off them for a minute, they'll stop working. And you can't trust them. And the theory Y is the complete opposite. And the theory why is what we're being told today is this is the way to manage people. And it's all, you know, when you're handling millennials, you know, this is the way they need to be handled. And if you want to motivate people, don't micromanage them, do this. McGregor wrote that theory back in the 1960s. Wow. And everybody that's in a management role today that is around that long, <laughs> they learned about that in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. And for some reason, the message still doesn't hit home. And I go back to your DNA, your value system, that if you have a value system that trusts people and inspires people to do more themselves, then these things, the, the rest of it just slips into place. So for managers, I would say experiment with people. I'm not saying that everybody has got the company's values and mission and purpose at their soul they've got other things in their life yeah. and sometimes unfortunately be distracted by things and um, they can't give their self but for I would just say to managers be be more trusting and um, open up opportunities to people help people open up opportunities and if they fall once and it fails don't just discard the experiment there and then um, try to get it back on the rails, keep going yeah. again. And I think ultimately it will pay dividends. You, managers will get more from people when they are more opening, more open, more trusting, empowering. Um, there are people who will, who will try to play the system. I, I get that. And, yeah. But that should not be what makes, doesn't, it shouldn't be what defines the culture within the business. Yeah. Those people I think are the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. They are. And I, I believe that people are inherently good yeah. and that people inherently can be trusted and people inherently will do their best, provided there are other circumstances that are put in place by the company. They've got the right tools, they've got the right skills, yeah. they know expected of them, all that stuff. But I think inherently people are good and they want to get on and do an honest day's work and um, they want to be part of the success of whatever the company's why is. Yeah. They have to have a sense of belonging that they've contributed to achieving that why. So I would say people trust. Adaptability to me, and when you mentioned to start with why, um, there's another dimension, and somebody that was involved in that group we're working with now to try to develop some adaptive leadership skills. And I think this is really, really important, and it's going to become more profound. And that is that, you know, and we in Siemens, for example, we're a great company of doing this. You're a customer. You say... I want a wind turbine, it has to be 150 meters tall, it has to be yeah. grey, produce four megawatts of energy. Um, and uh, guess what you get from Siemens? You get a 150 meter wind turbine, it's grey and it delivers four, four megawatts of energy. 
engineering to the nth degree. We deliver exactly what we say and it's bulletproof and it will last for years. Not everything in life is like that. And particularly yeah. around the why and the purpose and sense of belonging, they're, they're not engineering problems that you can solve by sitting in a room for 10, 20, 40, 60 hours. You will never get an answer to that. No. What you've got to do is decide what is something that you can do that's going to make it a little bit better experiment and try it and if it works embed it and move on and try the next thing this whole covid thing is an adaptive challenge how we're going to evolve from something that we were thrust into in a covid environment and then come out of it with something that's a really attractive flexible uh, work lifestyle that's balanced with home lifestyle yeah. is an adaptive problem and if we sit in a room now and try to engineer what we're going to look like in five years time we'll never come out of the room we have to figure out something better is good figure out something to push it forward make it a little bit better and then drive on if it works embed it if it doesn't get rid of it and people say oh that's a crazy way of working we, we you know how could you work like that we so do clever. it all the time yeah. But we do it all the time. I mean, a new app comes out for a mobile phone and the younger generations, they don't even think twice about this. But like when my generation looked at this at first and I bought an application and suddenly I realized that for, the, for the phone and I suddenly realized there were bugs or problems with it or faults with it. And I'm going, why the hell did you release that if there's bugs and problems with it? Well, if they didn't release it, then somebody else would have and they would have yeah. lost market share. So they got the minimum product out there they got me using it they got feedback from me as whether it was working or not and then they embellished the product and then they honed it yeah and they keep keep bringing out up so now we're all happy with this environment where we get updates on applications for our phones that make them better and better and better we'll do take the same attitude with these adaptive challenges and work about trusting people and about empowering yeah. people you can actually apply it to any area of your life though yeah. isn't it because if you're yeah. waiting on something to be perfect you'll just never get it done you'll never get it done and that's such a positive note to end the podcast on so um You've been so good. Thank you so, so much. There's so much oh, I know no, that I people that I listen, I could talk to you for hours. There's so much that I um people will take away from this. And you just I don't know if you realize it, but you've a wealth of information. I could have sat here just taking notes listening to you, but luckily I'll get to um to watch this back and, and share it with, with everybody. How was it for you? No, I enjoyed the experience. It's cathartic, obviously, too. <laughs> have to go back to 1977 all over again <laughs> um you know but uh no and I, it, it's nice to hear yourself thinking out loud as well that you know yeah. sometimes you just do things you're kind of on on autopilot and yeah. you do things and you wonder is there an origin for that and you kind of hear that you know the, you, it kind of gives me insight it brings it grounds me again as to where the origins of some of these things are coming from yeah, no, it's been so good. And it's, I mean, like, I was nervous as well because I was thinking, like, <laughs> don't make a show of yourself, Siobhan. Um, but you've been very kind and so generous with your ideas. I can see how and why you are where you are because, like, you're an inspirational speaker for somebody who says that when they went into sales that they weren't, like, you know, um, going out and, like, you know, like the wolves of Wall Street that we see sometimes in recruitment, you know, the three-piece suits and all of this. Like, people yeah. buy off people, and I can see why at every level of your career you've got people to buy into you. So 
it's been very inspirational. It was my absolute pleasure to welcome Gary O'Callaghan, CEO of Siemens, onto the Glasshouse podcast. We talked about so much and still didn't manage to cover everything. We discussed whether leadership is nature versus nurture, how your early years affect your management DNA, your career path, diversity, and so much more. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as I enjoyed talking to Gary. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts.